One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the place where we sit down every week and challenge our guests to choose just three songs that are intimately bound to their lives and their life stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is Phil Roy. Phil was born and raised in Philadelphia and was musical from early on. He got his first guitar, an electric tiger guitar, when he was about nine and started taking lessons soon after. He attended Berklee College of Music as a guitar major, and it was around that time that he first took an interest in songwriting. Phil then moved to Los Angeles in 1981 and almost immediately got signed to Warner Brothers Records with his band Carrera. They released a couple of albums, but his bio says, quote, For the most part, no one owns or has ever heard of these recordings, end quote. In 1987, he signed the first of what turned out to be five publishing deals to write songs as a staff songwriter in Los Angeles. He's written scores of songs for some of the greats, including Ray Charles, Pop Staples, Aaron Neville, Joe Cocker and Mavis Staples. Two Academy Award-winning films include Phil's songs, Leaving Las Vegas and As Good As It Gets. He actually wrote one of his favorite and most memorable songs called Melt with his old friend Nicolas Cage. Phil eventually got burnt out trying to write hits for his publishers, and in 2000 he self-released his album Grouchy Friendly, which gained traction on NPR stations around the country. It won Independent Album of the Year from Musicians Atlas Magazine. He has since released three more solo albums, Issues and Options, in 2003, The Great Longing in 2005, and In the Weird Small Hours in 2009, which won a concept album of the year by the Independent Music Awards. These days, he says he lives an entirely different life. After living in Boise, Idaho for about a decade with his wife, they moved to Fort Myers shortly after Hurricane Ian with their two kids, nine-year-old Enzo and five-year-old Indira. Hey there, Phil. How are you? Good to see you, Mike. When was the last time you were in a studio with headphones on talking into a mic? You know, man, I can't remember. Yeah? <laughs> I have a, a totally different life right now that uh, does not uh, equal uh, this room with the padding and this microphone and you sitting across from me. It's, uh, yeah, I could probably figure it out. But it's been years. You know what? It hasn't been that long. <laughs> I was going to do a show in Boise, Idaho, maybe a couple years ago. And I remember going into the radio station and talking about how we're going to raise some money for the restaurant industry was decimated oh, through COVID. Right. So I was going to play a show. And then I didn't realize that the show I was going to play was like at a pizza place that would have made me not so happy to play at. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It was not Lincoln Center. Yeah. Um, And I didn't do it. No? No. Wow. You know, I can't – I'm just not that guy to sit and play music when people are just drinking, eating, talking, eating pizza. I mean, for my brethren that do that, it's wonderful. But for me, 
I've, I, I have to respect the path that I've taken. Right. And that path doesn't – I'll eat some pizza, <laughs> but I don't want to sing in between bites. Understood. So anyway, I didn't do it. I, I thought it was going to be a different scene. I thought it was going to be more like a concert. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was going to be more like a concert. It's yeah. like, hey, you can charge ticket, you know. You know, there's just you can't in this life, whatever you do, you can't undervalue yourself. Hmm. And that's one of my – it's an important thing to me that, that you know, self-respect, keep your dignity, you know, I get it. You get it? I get it. Yeah. And we don't have any pizza in this studio. No. <laughs> okay. Well, that's too bad because, I, you know, I after we're done, I'd like a piece. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Philly. I did. Born and raised in Philly. Born and raised. Describe the musical scene of your childhood, the, the flavors that are, were around you, maybe your parents' listening styles, just like what was the You know, the I, was scene? Born, I was born in 59, so by the time I was four or five, that's like 64, and that's Beatle world and Motown world, and I still have the 45s hmm. of my childhood in a cool little bag in my closet. And, uh, you know, it was growing up in Philadelphia was a certain flavor because we had the soul music and we had great AM stations, Hmm. WFIL, uh, a station called Wibbage, and... um, you know, I was glued to the radio. So it was um, – what I remember is Beatles and Motown the most. Um, and it was very important to me. I mean, I loved music. Was it important to your family as well or were you like on your own little path there? Uh, it was uh, – Important probably to my dad. Um, my brother, it wasn't important to at all. Hmm. He gave no inclination of, you know, really getting excited about music. So I, and that was just my one brother. And yeah, it was, it was, I just remember in my room having my little 45 uh, playing apparatus. And I got these 45s and I just sat there loving it. I I remember even how does this work? How do you put a needle on a piece of (laughs) plastic vinyl and then all of a sudden sounds come out? It was like magic. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, um, it was definitely something I, uh, really gravitated to. Yeah. Uh, were there instruments being played around you? Is that how you wound up with a guitar? No, or? no, no, no. My grandmother played piano. She did the stride kind of thing. Fly me to the moon. You know, she would always like play the cool tunes. In other words, oh my hand. I mean, I remember uh, her piano playing. Um, but there were no instruments, uh, 
you know, I kind of had a tiger guitar, an Emini tiger guitar, which if you look on eBay, you can probably get one. It it's was acoustic? It was a electric uh, guitar. Oh, okay. That had a little pickup in it. And so that was I, your first guitar? Was that, that was an electric? electric tiger guitar. You know, I might, that was the first one that I really remember. And then I started taking guitar lessons at nine. Went to the local music store, had a Framus. I remember my first guitar, a little tiny student guitar, and I loved it. I, I, you know, some kids are into sports, and uh, you know, I played sports with the kids in the neighborhood, but uh, I like music. Hmm. Do you take right to the guitar? Were you a quick study? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, played Mexican hat dance. Da, 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 <laughs> you know, I think I learned how to read. Uh, I wasn't like self-taught. I had a guitar teacher. I learned how to, you know, read music. And um, but then I figured out that I knew my chords. You know, I figured out that you could. Sing and play chords together. And it was uh, like a light bulb went out. Like, wow, I can sing the melody and play a chord, and that's how it works. Hmm. When did you write your first song? The first song I remember that had, was, had any significance was I was already at Berkeley College of Music. So you didn't write a so you didn't write a no. song young you didn't young you didn't write no, try to no, come no, up no, with no. words. No, I did not like have that like I was not like some kid nowadays who are 11, 12, 13 on YouTube writing a song and getting it out to the world. No, I was more into playing guitar. Right. I was like you know the guy who played at your high school dance with right. his 66 Strat. With this, with that guitar at thirteen, like with playing solos behind my head, like Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> I was that dude. What were the I, songs you know. that you were playing when you first started singing with the music? Like, who were you covering? I was Muscle Brown Sugar by the Stones, yeah. Jumpin' Jack Flash. You know, is a gas, gas, gas. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I just was playing House of the Rising Sun. Hmm. That was my. That, I think that was the first song that I played with a band. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it was uh, it was just songs that were kind of popular at the time. Understood. Yeah. Um, let's do your first song, and then we'll get on into your musical life. Okay. First song is the uh, Four Tops song? Yeah. This is uh, Reach Out. We're going to listen to it first. I'll be there. Now, with that intro, you know something's coming down. This is Phil Roy's first song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. It's Reach Out, I'll Be There by the Four Tops from their album Reach Out, released in 1967. Wow. Wow. That was great. <laughs> that was great. I mean, the story is it takes me back to sitting in a Buick Riviera, 1966, 
Buick Riviera getting dropped off at like the 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 Sunday school I had to go to the Hebrew school I had to go to is Jews from Philly you know my family weren't very religious but made sure that I went on Sunday and I didn't want to get out of the car cuz that song was playing I'm like no I'm not leaving I'm not leaving the car. And I just remembered, and I still remember to this day, I was like seven, that that's important, that I love that. And looking back on it now that I'm older, you know, all the people I wrote songs for, lyrically, writing about struggle, writing about redemption, writing about love. I mean, it's all there in that lyric. And uh, just that vocal is fantastic. And, you know, you can't see me on the radio. I'm a white dude from Philly. And that was my... That was my stuff. I loved it. I loved it so much. And I think that's why people like later on, like Ray Charles, Aaron Neville, Pop Staples, I think that's why they recorded my songs. Because from a young age, I understood the foundations of soul music. Hmm. Trying to imagine it coming out of that AM radio speakers, that sort of high gain, low resolution sound blaring out at you. Yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> I thought about that too as I was as I was going back in time. Yeah, yeah, different and than these studio headphones. Different than with the a studio. Remastered yeah, version. It, it is just a, a a those push buttons and that AM station and that car. And the vinyl bucket seats, and I was probably in the back. And I'm, like, listening to that song, and I just was like, this is great. This is really great. Hmm. And, you know, I think I still have the single. I have the 45. Do you remember what was on the B-side? No. Oh, I was. I have it. I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> no, dude. I'm not. No, no. <laughs> Until you love someone was okay. the B-side. <laughs> well, there you go. That's why it was the B-side. <laughs> yeah, if I would have known that, I've been like on Jeopardy or something. Right. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, was that kind of music music that you were already listening to at home, uh, or was that kind oh, of yeah, like that your was in- radio? I mean, I don't. So think that my wasn't dad... like your introduction to that kind of music. Uh, no, just, you know uh, that was WDAS and WHAT and WDAS in Philadelphia. Those were um, those were the two stations, and yeah, Temptations, Four Tops, Supremes. That's my got a fist bump from Jared. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's my. That was my world. Mm. You know, I I was taken. Uh, there was a place called the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, theater. It was like this dinner theater kind of thing. And I was taken uh, a couple times there 
but I saw the Four Tops and the Supremes. Could have been the Temptations and the Supremes. I'd have to look it up. But, you know, as a young kid, I love that stuff. Mm. And still listening to it today, you know, as a record maker, a lifelong record maker, I am just in awe of the way it sounds mm. and the performance because there wasn't a lot of punch-ins. Right. And no auto-tune. Right. It's a performance. And that's why they call these records because it's a record of a moment. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference in a lot of the music today. Uh, you just reminded me of a uh, Ani DeFranco lyric. People used to make records as in records of an event, of music being played in a room. Now everything's about cross-marketing and blah, blah, blah. That's a great song. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're skipping ahead a little bit. But I'm like, you know, as I uh, was at the, the, you know, I made four albums as a uh, um, solo artist. And we're skipping way ahead. But, yeah, I found that just being uh, the self-promotion needed in social media, updating my Facebook, my space page, my Facebook yeah, page, yeah, yeah. my Twitter page. Doesn't seem like that's your That's not link. music. That's not yeah. what I'm trained in. That's not what uh, – and, and that really um, was a big part of me going like, hey, you want to hear about me? Hey, I want to tell you about me. Can I tell you about me? You want to listen to my song? Hey. No, you really do. Can I play you my song? I got tired of that. I did that for 30-plus years. I got tired. So anyway, we skipped it way ahead. Well, we'll skip back and then yeah, we'll skip Yeah, but let's go. But, but I'll be there at 7. Yeah. It was great. Mm. Yeah. So you were the guitar guy in high school. Mm-hmm. Was that like – did you do any other arts besides like making your own – or, you know, being in bands? Did you do band? Did you do theater? Did yeah, I got thrown out of stage band yeah. for, for uh, playing too loud. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I beat out the – I was in 10th grade. I remember this. I was uh, – you know, I wanted that – I wanted to play with the stage band because they were doing cool stuff. I played jazz, jazzy stuff too. I mean I was really – you know, I mean, I played Girl from Ipanema, you know, when I was da, 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 da. And, uh, but I could really play that well. <laughs> Little chord medley, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I like I like jazz and a little bit. And especially in high school, I got into it. And yeah, I beat out the guy in the senior. I was in 10th grade. And I got that spot to be the guitar player. And then... I don't know, man. I guess I didn't uh, turn down a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the strat was too loud. Huh. Yeah. So uh, you went to Berkeley College of Music. Mm-hmm. Um, in reading up on you, you know, a lot of times parents kind of get there to try to direct their kids away from the arts. It seems like you had the opposite experience. Is that a fair assessment? I did, yeah. Uh, um, you know, in high school, in junior high school, uh, as a young person, I really loved playing guitar. I, I think that it gave me 
something to latch on to and not just be the stoner kid that uh, might have been in my destiny. <laughs> Put the bong down, Phil. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I actually was good at something. And, and now that I have a nine-year-old, you know, I'm like, you know, Enzo, you got to get good at something. My son's Enzo. And, uh, yeah, I felt like it, I was good at it. You know, people thought that I'd play it. 14, 15 years old, I'd play at dances, you know, I'd play at people's houses and they'd say, you're going to play at the Spectrum. You're going to play at the Spectrum one day. And that was the big uh, Madison Square Garden of Philadelphia. Gotcha. And you're going to play at the Spectrum. People put in my yearbook, see you at the Spectrum. Well, I never did, but I played some other places. You played some other places. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, Berkeley... To go back to your question, Berkeley, yes, was my father was very supportive of me pursuing uh, music, really supportive. One of the – we had a lot of troubles in terms of uh, – in adulthood into uh, our, our relationship, but I have to be very grateful to him for encouraging me to go to Boston and right out of high school go to Berklee College of Music. Presumably you had to audition. Do you I remember did. your audition? Um, no. no. I think I had to send a tape. Okay. So you didn't have to go sit I, in front no. of a room full I of didn't people have to, or No, like no, that. no. I didn't have to fly there. I didn't have to do anything. I think I had to write, um, you know, write an entrance statement and tell them about my life in music and guitar playing and uh, I did send a tape but no at that point Berkeley in 77 was very different than Berkeley now hmm. I mean I think it was like seven or eight grand to go there for the year I think it's like 60 yeah now and uh, it was a very different time yeah it was a very very different time. And I uh, went up there to visit. I remember by myself, got a hotel room, looked around. I was like, yeah, let's go do this. And uh, it was uh, a critical uh, choice because I found out a few things. One, I'm an okay guitar player. <laughs> uh, I'm not, you know, I mean, I was there with like people like Kevin Eubanks used to be, you know, the leader. I mean, I, Mike Stern. I, I mean, all these great guitar players that I saw from all over the world. I wasn't just in my high school anymore. I saw where I landed in the food chain, so to speak. And I was good. But I wasn't one of those dudes. And, but I took a course called Pop Songs One. And that changed my life. How? Well, you're supposed to write a pop song. Are we back to the first song you ever wrote now? <laughs> now we are finally back to the first song I ever wrote. 
And there was another guy from Philadelphia that also was a Berkeley, and we met each other, a guy named Greg Toombs, which regretfully he is no longer in the physical world, his past. But we wrote a song, and you have to write a song for Pop Songs 1. And then uh, the next semester, you go in the recording studio and record it. And the song was called From Behind. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course it was. (laughs) Remember the lyrics? Yeah. And it wasn't about a sexual experience. It was about it was about the yearning you have, the want for the girl who just turns away. And you look at her from behind as she's leaving you to go find some other dude. Something like that. Or maybe that's – I do remember it. And you recorded it? Yeah. I have a recording of it. Not today. But it goes something like, I take the time to wait for you when my working day is through. You're the visions of my fantasy. Baby, I need you close to me. You walk away so fast. I can't stand such a short glance. From behind. Baby, baby. From behind, baby, baby, from behind. How was it received? Did you get a good grade on it? (laughs) I got a good grade. I got a good grade. It was so well received that my teacher, my professor at Berkeley, was like, do you have any more? Hmm. And I'm like, yeah. You didn't, but you were gonna. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there were no. I got more. a book full. To yeah, I'll bring so, them to you so, next yes. week. <laughs> so that started it. Yeah. From behind that little song, that seed, that started a life. That class, that song. I, my first time in a recording studio, first song ever recorded. I love the recording studio. It was like an eight track with these big knobs and this board, old board, old um, amp. Uh, I forget what it was, but um, uh, everything was just like, wow. And the door closed to the studio. Sort of like we're in the studio now. It's a little studio, but most people have never been in a studio. Mm-hmm. And I was in the recording studio and I'm playing guitar and like listening to it back. And it was, I found my place. And I wrote a few more songs with my friend Greg. And we started a band and it was called Split Decision. Well, that's not bad. Not bad. That's not bad for a first band name. No, no, no. Split Decision. And I have to say, Uh, we started playing locally. We recorded more songs. In Split Decision with Cindy Blackman. 
Cindy is now married to Carlos Santana mm. and is one of the great drummers of uh, our lifetime. I mean, she's great. Hi, Cindy. Um, so she was in my college band, and, uh, and Mark Ledford uh, is also passed, but he was with Pat Metheny um, for a long time. And uh, that little band was uh, a good thing. And it got me to a place after recording a few more songs. About four months later, I was in New York shopping for a record deal with my little cassettes saying, please like me. <laughs> Do you like me enough? Did somebody like you enough? No. No? <laughs> no. Not at that time. Nope. Didn't. But I kept – but. I figured out that what I wanted to do, I want to write songs and make records. That's what I want to do. I don't want to play at Holiday Inns, which I did. I don't want to be a side guy to a, on sessions, which is a great thing to do. But again, I'm, my guitar playing was good, but not a studio session guy on other people's records, which I've done, but not as a prof- not to put the whole, you know – Bet on that as a career, but writing songs, singing them, playing my own songs, and recording them, that was, I could see doing that. And that's what Berkeley gave to me. It was important. It was really important. Then you headed to L.A., did you finish Berkeley? I think maybe you didn't no. finish Berkeley. You left to no. go pursue your dreams. Were your folks okay with that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I um, man, I've done. Uh, yeah, I was at Berkeley. I stayed five years, and I met uh, two brothers. We weren't that great friends, but we knew each other. You see, at Berkeley in the 70s, if you did anything else other than jazz, you were considered, uh, you know, not not cool. Unserious. Unserious. You, you put up – if you're in a rock band playing – the cars were recording when I was there, you know, out of Boston. But if you want to do pop music or rock music or whatever you're into, you put something up, put a, put a coat over the, the window in the rehearsal hall. <laughs> it was weird. So there were a few people, though, that were taking the pop thing seriously. London and Chris McDaniels. London – was 21 or 20. His brother Chris was 16 or 17. And we kind of like listened to a little bit of what each other were doing. And I had just gotten a lot of equipment stolen. Hmm. My guitar, that Stratocaster, well, the body of it. Uh, the neck of it. It's another story. Anyway, I uh, I got a bunch of guitars stolen and amps. And I was like, oh, Boston, you know, five years playing in bands, working at delis, working at restaurants, cooking, which is another serious interest of mine. And um, anyway, I got a call from London. And he goes, hey, man, do you want to come out to L.A.? 
and we just got some interest from, you know, uh, a producer. Do you want to come out? And I'm like, yeah. And I went out to L.A., and I went to a party at Chikoria's house, and I saw Rod Stewart in the grocery store, and I'm like, this is where I need to be. This is where I need to be. And uh, I, my, these, the guys, Chris and London, uh, were extraordinary. They were really good. And, um, I mean, they were two black brothers uh, with a father who wrote, That's the time I feel like making love to you. Mm-hmm. That's the time I feel like making dreams come true. Oh, baby. Yeah. Hmm. Gene McDaniels. So these were Gene McDaniels' kids, and he had a couple hits in the early 60s. But a, a, a kind of like now regarded as, in the neo-soul world, a very important figure. Um, yeah, so this was his kids. And, you know, I moved out to L.A., and uh, ended up on Sunset in La Cienega. Had a cousin out there I stayed with, Lynn. And, uh, you know, just started making a life. And then, you know, when I went to Berkeley, and that teach those, that, that professor, that teacher, mm-hmm. that asked me if I have any more songs, he was there too. Oh, wow. And he, we started making demos with him. Hmm. Bob Osinski, he now writes books on recording. Huh. Handbooks, really famous handbooks. And we recorded one song with him called One More Love. And... It sounded really good, (laughs) if I must say so myself. Um, I wish I had it here. You know, it is, I think that London put a version of it up on on, uh, Apple Music or Spotify, or it's on YouTube. What's it called? Carrera. Are we called our band Carrera, which was not a good name. What's the name of the song? One More Love. One More Love by Carrera. Two R's with in the middle of one R at the end. Yes. One More Love. Jared's looking it up. Uh, that's it. You wrote this? Yeah. Are you on this recording in any way? Yes. Here I am right now. Try to write. <laughs> okay. Yeah, actually, this is the one. This song is one of the songs that I did not. This was like the only one because this song was written when I just got to L.A. by London and Chris and another friend named Danny Brent. And I was like, that's a great song. The way the chorus comes in. The chord changes. I mean, it's very 1983. It definitely it feels like that time. I mean, but then 
on a day when I was downtown selling sandwiches in office buildings with my little um, cooler. Hey, you want turkey sandwich? Let's see what I have today. Tuna, turkey, want a drink? I would go to office buildings. And if the sandwich was five bucks, I'd get two. I was selling sandwiches. Well, my partners, London and Chris, were on Sunset Boulevard. And they were going to get a copy of that song. Needed some cassettes. So there was cassette duplicate or or it was on a it was on a only had a half inch copy that you needed a professional machine to make a cassette. Anyway, they got a cassette. And outside of Sunset Sound, which was one of the preeminent recording studios in the world, they recognized Ted Templeman. And for the listeners who don't know who Ted is, he signed Van Halen and produced them. He signed the Doobie Brothers and produced all their records, Little Feet. Um... You know, uh, and he was in this studio with, uh, uh, oh boy, Nicolette Larson, who was an artist signed to Warner Brothers, and my two partners in the beat-up Volkswagen van, uh, uh, station wagon pulled on the side and said, hey, you're Ted, you're Ted Templeman? They recognized him. You want to listen to our song? Oh, come on, guys. No. Uh, No. No, really, would you listen to our song? With a Sony Walkman. And he listened to that song. And he listened to, like, got to the chorus like we just did, shut it off, and said, come in, the studio. And on that day, he authorized us to do two more songs for Warner Brothers. It was $2,000, and somewhere I have the piece of paper with this letterhead of Warner Brothers in this beautiful color, all embossed, and said, I authorize $2,000 for two songs for Carrera. And that changed my life. Hmm. That day, I came home, and my two, London and Chris said, well, if we told you today that we ran into Ted Templeman, and he gave us money to record more demos, what would you say? Well, that would be great, but no. And they pulled out the letter. And uh, one of the happiest days of my life. Did you sell sandwiches the next day? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I think that, uh, you know, I figured out that I could make more money if I stopped at the Chinese restaurant and brought paper plates and portioned out money. I was, you know, uh, industrious. Mm. You know, you have to be a bit ambition, ambitious to do this, to go ahead and, you know, it's not just like that song we just listened to. That's part of it. But there was a certain ambition that we all had. And luck, that timing of that producer, of that car, of that Sony Walkman, of that moment, that changed everything because 
we did the two songs. We got signed to Warner Brothers. And he said he wanted to produce us. And we were the first new band that he was going to produce since the Doobie Brothers. Mm. And we were like, we're going to be rock stars. But it didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get to the not working out uh, down this road. No, it didn't quite work work like that. No, it didn't. Well, we'll pick that back up after we do your second song. Okay. Which is the Chicago song. All right. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I chose that one. Going to listen to this one, too? Sure. All right. This is a song that's been on the show before. It was uh, picked by a stilt walker named Too Tall Tory. Wow, a stilt walker. Stilt walker. Me and a stilt walker you are in sync. You and a stilt walker are in sync. <laughs> no right. surprise. Um, this is 25 or 6 to 4 by Chicago off their 1970 self-titled album. It's Phil Roy's second song today here on Three Song Stories. This is Biography Through Music. 25 or 6 to 4. I mean, what can you say? <laughs> I mean, the dissonance. At the end of that song with the horns, the um, one main riff, which is like of my era, everyone went da 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 And also that was my – the reason I picked this, it was my first concert. It was my first – my dad took me and my cousin – who ended up being in radio his whole career um, to Chicago. And that was my first concert at the Spectrum mm. in Philadelphia. And uh, there was an opener who no one paid attention to. In fact, I don't even know if he finishes whole set because he was not well-received. And that was Bruce Springsteen. Wow. So my first show was Bruce Springsteen opening for Chicago. And he was not well received. He was not well received. Philly, in Philly, which is Philly. Jersey adjacent. I know. I know. <laughs> it was really early on. I don't really remember. I, I just – and actually my, my cousin Rob – he, he, who is a uh, aficionado at all things, you know, music. I mean, a very significant radio programmer um, uh, through his career. Yeah, he, he seemed to, like we talked about it, and he remembered that. And I just remember smelling weed. Yeah. and us uh, not having great seats and my dad kind of moving us down a little bit to better seats. But that was my first concert, and I I continued going to a lot of concerts. After that, I'd keep all my my ticket stubs, and it was like me, um, you know, again, being very connected to music. A lot of kids... Don't go to con- – I mean, I don't think my brother went to one concert. Hmm. I don't think that – unless I took him. Um, but, yeah, that was uh, – and, and I love that band at that time. It got to be 
there was a producer named David Foster who was really famous and ended up taking Chicago in a different direction and it got very much more mellow and middle of the road, um, easy listening kind of stuff, very well-crafted songs, but not really that Chicago transit authority, which listen to Terry Kath play guitar. I mean, it's just like fantastic. And I wanted to emulate that. That was one of my dudes until, you know, he had a horrible accident and playing Russian roulette with a pistol and there was a bullet in the pistol and he died. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, I love that band. And I sung that song in bands hundreds of times. What does it mean? What does the title mean? What is 25 or 6 to 4? Is there a meaning? Well, I think that Robert <laughs> Lamb wrote that is song. A, is it a time? Yeah, it time it's a time. No, 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 no. I think Robert Lamb wrote that song and it was up in the middle of the night. And it was like, oh, oh man, it's a 25 or 6 to 4 in the morning. That's what it meant. Huh. And it was late. And who knows what he was up to at 25 or 6 to 4 to 3. <laughs> but it was 25 or 6 to 4 to 4 a.m. Right. And I think that was their first big hit. And, you know, I don't know if they have any original members touring. They're still on the road. Just like Blood, Sweat, and Tears. These, you know, and I also listen to what I listen. I listen to that track. And I hear so many different influences that I loved. Uh, which was the horns, the the arrangement, the jazz, the instrumental section of the jam, the uh, background vocals. I mean, just everything going on in that song appeals to me. And it's still, as an adult now, as the 64-year-old me, it still appeals to me. It's like uh, it, it just has a performance and an authenticity and an honesty to it that after all these years, for me, it's still there. Mm. That's classic. That's why they call it classic rock, you know? Yeah. So we're back in L.A. It didn't work out. Oh, no. But then you turned to songwriting. Well, I gave it another shot yeah, I was first. Say, how long yeah. was the arc between the no, $2,000 we, we kept his, and Yeah, then... the $2,000 worked out in a way where I got a record deal with Warner Brothers. And we were like 22, 21, and 19. Just kids. Green. You know, at, at the greatest record label, one of them in the world and dreaming big. And it just didn't ha – it just didn't work. Um Ted, I think now as an adult, first of all, my two partners were uh, followers of the Hare Krishna movement. And what that means is no drinking, no smoking, vegetarians, very devoted to a higher path. And Ted was like cocaine, alcohol, you know. 
whatever he was into, it didn't I, – I understood that the hang was an important thing, you know, in making a record. I don't think he – we were no fun. I was just a little funner. I wasn't our <laughs> Krishna. But, but you were having to straddle that too. But yeah, I straddled that too. It just didn't it just didn't work. And um I think that he was going through things with Van Halen that uh uh now I understand were difficult in terms of them wanting to do it themselves. They needed another Doobie Brothers live record. We kept on getting put back on the shelf and back on the shelf and back on the shelf. And we were like a racehorse, ready to go. And they wouldn't let us out of the gate. And eventually it killed it. It just killed it. That didn't work. And uh, the album did not sound good. I was in Tower Records and so excited to see my album in Tower Records in 1983. In L.A. Tower in Records. L.A. on Sunset again. Uh-huh. It came out and they put it on because they knew it was our our record. And it sounded like crap. The mastering, the mixes. I was like, oh, no. This doesn't sound good. Through the speakers, nothing happened. Mm. Nothing. And if you look on Ted Templeman's Wikipedia page – we're the only ones that don't have a link. <laughs> it's dead. It's dead. There's the death notice. Carrera, 1983. No further link. Um, then, then we re- recouped and we got another record deal um, on EMI uh, Manhattan, which was Bruce Lundvall, one of the greatest record men ever in the history of the record business. You can look him up. He signed us. Uh, and actually, I was just watching the Whitney Houston movie. And the guy that signed that went with Clive Davis to go see Whitney Houston for the first time in the movie is the guy that signed us <laughs> to uh, EMI. And... Uh, you know, again, we made a record, some good producers, tried real hard, major record deal, nothing. And got another deal, little development deal on Chrysalis Records at the time, another little deal with A&M just to do more songs. They throw you money and and then we were about to just kill each other because everyone was like the band – it was like everyone thought they knew why this wasn't working. We had talent. Were you were you hiding that from yourselves, or was it just open out? And well, went, the brothers, and, the two brothers weren't. You know, we were two black guys and a and a Jew. You know, I mean, white guy. I mean, no one really knew what to do with us. There was no. We didn't even put our our faces on the cover uh, <laughs> in 1983 because it just didn't really exist, and. Um, they didn't know how to market us. You could tell the music, the little bit you played was like it was pop music but more sophisticated and I don't know. We it just it just didn't work. And then I started writing songs. There was a guy named Mike Chapman who wrote Simply the Best. Dun, 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 better than all the rest. Wrote it with Holly Knight, who is one of the top 
Yeah, he wrote Better Be Good to Me. He wrote Ballroom Blitz. He produced the Blondie records. Um, all the cl- He produced the Knack. Mike Chapman, look him up. Legendary uh, music producer and writer. He signed me to my first publishing deal, thinking that I had the goods. Signed all three of us for like $800 a month. That we had the goods to write songs for other artists and have hits. Was that um, exciting or a tough pill to swallow? Exciting. Yeah. I was kind of burnt out of like the, the disappointment of having these major record deals and absolutely nothing happening. I will say that that one thing happened with the war. We changed our name to World Citizens. Okay, that's a little better. Spelled weird. I don't know. Someone was into numerology in the band. Of course they were. <laughs> Why couldn't we just spell it regular? But we didn't. So you have to look up S T I T I N Z or something. Um, but we were on MTV with a song called Lock It Up. And Prince saw us Mm. and requested our album. We got news from that from the record company. And that's the best story I can say. (laughs) That was the the peak. That was the peak. That was the peak. I mean, World Citizens, you know, a lot of people thought that that was going to do it. And it did nothing. So just because you get a major label deal means you got a major label deal, means you got something that believed in you, someone that believed in you. It does not mean that you are, have any kind of career at all. So um, I was very excited that Mike Chapman decided to uh, sign us as writers and my little stipend of $200 a week uh, back in 87 was really nice. And I started writing songs. Do you remember the first song that you heard that was a song that you wrote that went through the system that ended up in somebody's brain? And yeah, up- it was actually, as I mentioned, Prince, it was Apollonia. Apollonia recorded the first cut I ever got. Apollonia was Prince's... Uh, she was in Purple Rain. Right. Okay. She was in Purple Rain. The guitarist that stands behind him? No, Apollonia the... was a pretty, really beautiful girl. Oh, right, right, right. right. Okay, yeah. Okay. She's a really beautiful girl that was in the movie Purple Rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she recorded a song called Synchronize. Uh, that's, of again, it's the YouTube world. And... It's just a little pop tune that, you know, we thought was going to have a little life, and it didn't. <laughs> You're going to hear a lot of it didn't. It did and it didn't. It did and it didn't. Over and over again, it did and it didn't. And, um, you know, didn't do it. Yeah. So, But that was the first one. Then there was another one a band called Eighth Wonder that Mike Chapman produced and a song called Will You Remember? And that came out in Australia and New Zealand. It was kind of a hit. 
Nothing in the States, though. But, you know. And then... Um, And then I started writing soul music with a guy named Bob Thiel Jr. And I met Bob Thiel Jr. and Billy Valentine, who has a great new record out now. Hmm. Going to give my props to Billy V. Look up Billy Valentine, everybody. Um, and that's when things got interesting in the songwriter land. Uh, I got a Ray Charles cut, which was a big deal. Sounds like a big deal. It's a big deal. I mean, I still am like, it's surreal that Ray Charles sang one of my songs and wanted to sing something that I wanted to say. And it was the title track of his album. That won a Grammy for a Paul Simon tune. Still crazy after all these years. It's a great version of it on that album. So, yeah, uh, the Neville Brothers cut four of five of our songs on one of their albums. This is during that period. As I mentioned, Pop Staples recorded a song called Hope in a Hopeless World. Um... Something was going on. Finally, I was seeing that I was having success. I mean, it's success writing great songs. But in just in terms of the commerce and the way the music business works, uh, being able just to make a living as a grown-up, you know, um, it's hard being a musician and a songwriter because you go from being a Warner Brothers recording artist to being Santa Claus at the mall and selling shoes at the mall. And then you dust yourself off again and then you get another record deal and you keep on getting it doesn't work and you got to reinvent yourself and you do something else. You do something. If you're driven, you know, if you are driven and, you know, you you are able to do something that people want in their lives or people think they want in their lives, you can have a career. How long did you do that before you stopped doing that? 30-plus years. 30-plus hmm. years. Yeah, and then I had multiple – it started with Mike Chapman and then I got a, did a deal with Sony Music Publishing. was there for three years. I had a – uh, uh, my partner, Roy Hay. Hi, Roy. Roy Hay's in Culture Club. We met at a bar, uh, Le Dome restaurant. And man, that guy could drink. <laughs> and he was funny. And he wrote, do you really want to hurt me? He wrote, Karma Chameleon. He wrote, time won't give me time. I mean, he wrote all the Culture Club songs with George and his bandmates. And, you know, he and I started a production company together. And he built a beautiful studio at his house. And we did a signed a 30-record deal to do 30 sides with, uh, with Sony. And we did one. And we had an artist sign there. 
and it didn't work. Spent a year and a half on a record that Roy and I did. They shelved. I mean, you hear war stories like this of artists. Everyone's got them if they were in the game long enough. But it was relentless. You know, some things did work at that time at Sony. uh, At Sony, I started making my own album. I did a record that I never put out. It was called Betrayal and Forgiveness. Because at the time, my friend, well, he went out with my ex-girlfriend. It was my girlfriend at the time. (laughs) Yeah, she was my girlfriend. Right. She wasn't anymore. Right. (laughs) Thus the title. Like, how do you forgive? Um, so, but that got me into thinking like, you know, artist, Phil Roy, you know, you write songs for lots of different people. Maybe you should make your own albums. Now, that one never came out. Uh, then I, that didn't, nothing happened with that. And I signed to EMI Music Publishing. And that was a good two years. And Joe Cocker had a big hit with one of my songs. And many other people recorded songs. And uh, then I didn't sell enough records for them. They dropped me. And then I signed to Universal Music Publishing. All in L.A. during All in L.A. All in L.A. And, and in that time in L.A., um, personally – you know, I was in a uh, – uh, my friends were musicians and actors and directors and, you know, I was just part of the creative community. And, you know, I don't talk about this a lot but my roommate was Jim Carrey and we actually wrote a song. Jim that, Carrey. Jim Carrey. Mm. Yeah, I was the best man at his first wedding mm. and he was my roommate and he had just come down from Canada. And um, we wrote a song. Well, anyway, I wrote songs with everyone. Listen, at that time, we would have written a song. We would have written a it's song. It's not too late, Phil. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just like, that's what I did. You wrote a song with Nicolas Cage too, right? I did. And we wrote a song and uh, called uh, Melt. And Nick and I wrote a bunch of songs together. And I love the songs I wrote with Nick. And um, – Jim, I am not in touch with anymore, but Nick, I got a text from today. 40 years we've been friends. Hmm. And he sent me a beautiful picture from him and his family in Japan today. I love that guy. And 40 years, and not, you know, continually that, that you know, there's, there's things that happen and some years go by, but, you know, I got a beautiful, joyful picture today from Nick today and we wrote that song and that song changed my life. That was the song from the movie or the, no, the Melt song? Melt. No. The song from the movie was in Leaving Las Vegas and he asked the director if he could just use it in a scene. He goes, well, we can't pay for that. We can't pay for that. And Nick said, don't worry. I wrote it with my friend. It's okay. So um, yeah, he won the Academy Award for that performance and we went drinking in Ireland before that. Perform uh, before that performance for a week. Uh, 
So I like to think that I helped. <laughs> Method acting. Method acting. <laughs> um, so um, Melt, though, was the song. Anyway, uh, I was at the last publishing deal, and um, uh, I think it's important. After all these years, uh, I had a song that this guy David Foster produced with another Canadian guy for Jennifer Love Hewitt. And they basically wanted it for this movie, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. I wrote a song called I Know What You, for I know what you Did Last Summer, and I wrote a song for I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> Um, this was I still know what you did last summer and they wanted an artist to sing it and it wasn't Jennifer Love Hewitt it was someone else and then they said well we're going to have Jennifer Love Hewitt sing it and I'm like wow she's the star of the movie wow she's going out with Carson Daly wow she's on the cover of Rolling Stone wow I'm going to finally get a taste here we go. David Foster, the most successful producer, one of them in the world. You can go watch a documentary on that dude. You know, here we go. Paid me, paid the three writers in advance on a million records sold. Okay? We all put like $90,000, 30 grand in our pocket apiece. Here we go. It went to number 59 on the Billboard Hot 100. And that, as they say in Czechoslovakia, is that. <laughs> I was like, it was a hit in Australia, top 10, and a hit in New Zealand, again. Maybe I should move there. Yeah, I was going to say, they really like you over there. Yeah, they do. Um, Can I have the check, please? I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done trying to hit the target of having, like, these hit songs. You know, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And that is when Melt, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I recorded that song. I recorded a bunch of other demos. I'm still recording demos years later from Berkeley. I'm still doing demo land. Please like me. But this time I'm going to make an album at 40 years old. I am going to make an album. And uh, Tom Waits heard a couple songs because he was friends with, I met Tom through Nick Cage. And he called me and said how much he liked it. And I'm like, well, if Tom Waits likes my songs and likes my recording, well, maybe I should finish an album. And I did. And that was another life-changing experience. Because that song Melt got on the radio. The first ones to play it was KCRW in Los Angeles. And then it got sent to Philadelphia and WXPN in Philadelphia started playing it. And then the New York City station. 
and then the World Cafe, which is an NPR uh, uh, program, with David Dye started playing it. You came over to the public media side of things where you had a home. NPR changed my (laughs) life. Yeah, I love uh, NPR. In fact, on that first record, uh, on the first two albums, I said, please support NPR. Because they changed my – it was a life-changing thing. That song, Melt, I mean, it was just – it was the song of the year at at WFUV in New York City. I mean, it was like a phenomenon of sorts. It opened doors that were closed and um you know uh and it was i i still listen to that record and i know we're not supposed to play our own records on this show but that record um that record uh changed my life is that grouchy friendly grouchy friendly because i was grouchy after all these years of didn't, did, didn't, did, didn't, not for you. I was like, oh, man, is what is going on? Like, what is going on? Plus, I had these friends, you know, I don't want a comparative shop, but when your two best friends are Nick Cage and Jim Carrey, and you're just like, you're doing well, but maybe not that well, I mean, it was hard. It's hard to circumnavigate that world. And I don't, you know, I mean, people, listen, there's people, um, you know, migrants trying to get from one country to freedom for a better life. You know, pain, suffering is subjective. And I don't want to say like, you know, my troubles were you know, those kind of troubles. But at this period in my life, I was really unhappy from trying to push that boulder up the hill and it just completely falling back on me, especially when you're around people that the boulder's sitting at the top of the hill. And it was weird. And I... um uh, I had enough. I moved from Los Angeles and went to Philadelphia. I found a quote in a New York Times article about you, which I had to dig deep for. You went dig deep. Suddenly it occurred to me that I was writing songs to get on commercial radio when I wasn't even listening to commercial radio. I was making music for everyone but myself. That is true. You said it. It was in the New York Times. It was Times. in the New York Times, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that is when I played uh, that article was the Lincoln, the Lincoln Center show. So there was a few moments of of glimpses. And that, that article, if you read the whole article, mm-hmm. was the juxtaposition of me playing on New Year's Eve in front of 11 people in a basement. Mm-hmm. And practically ch- a pizza shop. Pa- practically a pizza <laughs> shop. And then going two weeks later to my sold-out show at Lincoln Center. That is what has been – that's why I was called grouchy friendly because those kind of things, um, you know, I think that I am – my DNA is very friendly and to be uh, – you know, everyone wants to have a certain happiness about them. 
But when you just come up to situations over and over and over again, you know, uh, and it doesn't work. And you have you dream big too. I mean, people go to their jobs every day, and maybe you know, they're not dreaming about having. If this just happens, I'm going to have a num top ten hit in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of people don't dream that big. And for many many years, I did. So, um, anyway, melt something happened with that. Me and Nick Cage wrote that song. And um, and I love the recording of it. I love it. I love that record. And uh, it was a take, one take, with two of the greatest guitar players in the world, Ricardo Severa and Hato Pereira, two wonderful old vintage guitars, great microphones, John Lefwich on bass, everything. Everything was like... Uh, it was cool. Anyway, you have to listen to it. I will listen to it. Okay. Um, we need to get to your third song, okay. but I want to ask that how did the Roberto Clemente thing come about? There's a YouTube video of you singing Hope in a Hopeless World. How did that come about? I was asked by a former executive at Capitol Records, Lou Man. Another did, didn't. Here we go. I was supposed to be Grouchy Friendly was meant to be the first release on the new House of Blues record label. And Lou Mann was the president of the House of Blues record label. He was a uh, he had assembled a great team and I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. And it was 9/11 happened. Money in 2000, the crash of of a certain economic thing happened, and the label never happened. It just didn't happen. I thought it was going to be – I was a contender. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was going to be like, great. I can play all the little House of Blues rooms across the country. Everyone get to know me. I've got the power of of people who know what they're doing. I was so grateful. It didn't happen. And um, Hope in a Hopeless World, Lou Mann is a great guy. And even though that didn't happen, he asked me to play some kind of benefit Mm -hmm. in – Pittsburgh, at um, a great venue, bigger bigger venue than I usually play. And he put a band together for me. And in that band was Tony Levin, bass player, extraordinaire, and mostly you know, known for playing with Peter Gabriel. David Sanchez, who played in the E Street Band and plays with Sting. Uh, the I mentioned all these people. Paul Simon, uh, he played me and Julio down by this. David Spinoza, one of the great session players and the drummer from Bob Dylan's band. He put together a great band. We rehearsed the song twice, and he had someone cut together uh, that video. And that, to me, after all these years, is an example. If you're listening to this podcast. 
hey, it's me. Or uh, you can go hope in a hopeless world. You can listen to that. You can see me actually play a show because there's not much on the internet. It's the only thing I can find. So there's not much. But I'm thankful for Lou Mann that he, at least there's one thing of me kind of doing what I'm doing and playing a song properly and properly filmed. And then they cut in Martin Luther King to it, and I'm like, I am so happy this exists. And every year on his birthday, I post that to my social media and just, yeah. You know, I listened to the Four Tops song at the beginning of the show, and it was about, there was a lyric about when you're losing hope and you have to hold on. And I never realized it, but that song, Hope in a Hopeless World, that you're talking about, goes back to my seven-year-old self listening to that Four Tops song. And, um, yeah, uh, I hope that, you know, I'm glad you noticed it was there. There's not much. Out of the long career that I've had, there's very... Little of me performing. Not much of you performing, but if you go to like discogs.com where they have artists and what they've done, you've got like, you know, all your writing credit. I mean, you've, you've done a ton. I have. And you know <laughs> what? I am uh, satiated. Yeah. I really am. I really can look back at it now because my life is so different. I am 64 years old. How did you end up here? Um, well, you were in, you said you were in Boise two years ago, so you've only been here. I was in here. Boise for a decade. So this but is what we have. you've only been here for a couple years. I have a five-year-old daughter, <laughs> 64 with a five-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. He's almost 10. So Indira, Indy Roy, and Enzo Roy. And my wife is uh, uh, Katerina Biller, and she is a pediatric surgeon. So, we met in Philly, and it was when I was finishing up my last album called The Great Longing for Universal, and the guy who did my website, his wife, uh, they went to high school together, and she met me. And she basically said, you should meet Phil Roy. She goes, he's like old. <laughs> and But at least I wasn't, you know, I'm 17 years older than Katerina. And uh, or she says, old man river. <laughs> and anyway, she was finishing her surgical residency in Philadelphia. We met, went out on a date. Had my dog, Travis, went to the park, made her some lamb tacos, sang her a song. Some other stuff happened. We've been together now for 14 years. So she, I kind of go where she goes. Understood. So she uh, 
did her fellowship at Columbia. And it's sort of a match thing in the, in the, in the world of medical training. She matched at Columbia, and I moved to New York City with her. And then she got a job in Boise, Idaho. And I'm like, Idaho? <laughs> wow. Okay. And we went to go visit, and it's actually it's – a, it's, it's a really good place. A little small, but um, so is Fort Myers here. Yeah. So we spent a decade in Boise, Idaho. I had two kids there, and uh, they shut down her division, her inpatient pediatric program at the hospital she was at there. And it was like, all right, where are we going to go? And I was, I looked at the website of possibilities where pediatric surgeons can get a job. That's my job, <laughs> to find the job. Mm -hmm. And I saw one in a hospital in Fort Myers that was looking for a pediatric surgeon. And I'm like, Fort Myers? That's where Sanibel is. That's where Captiva is. I'm like, palm trees and sand. Let's go to, I said, is there a job in Hawaii? No job in Hawaii. Well, let's go here. Let's go tropical. And um, she came down and interviewed. I came with her. She got the gig. Mm. Hi, everybody. Hi, Fort Myers. So like two years ago? Uh, six months ago. Six seven months? months ago. You've only been I, here I'm for new. seven months? I've been here for seven months, right after the hurricane. Oh, wow. Right after Ian, I was on my way down with a trailer, my car, my dog, Teo, and I turned around in Nebraska because there was no reason right. to come. Yeah. I'm sure you're reporting on it. I was sitting right here. I'm sure you I were lived here. in my office for 10 straight days. Yeah, I'm sure that you were part of, the, of, of, of Team Fort Myers to get through this. And um, I turned around. There was, her, her, her job start date was pushed back. But that's why I'm here. I mean, I am. Uh, uh, I got young children and a busy wife, and I have my responsibilities now, which uh, are more. Uh, I, I find it. Uh, you know, all this talk about music business. I find marriage, family life, and just to get that together, just as hard. <laughs> I mean. It is to be parents know, hey, parents, what's up? To be responsible for these young humans of their care and feeding and nurturing. Wow. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do it right, it's full on. And that's why the combo plate of family life and music uh, – Occasionally for a gig here and there, uh, it doesn't. It the mix is not. Uh, it, it's not a good. The bat the 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 batter and the and the gravy just it's it's separated. <laughs> the hollandaise broke. 
Yeah. How do you uh, how do you like Fort Myers now that it's like ninety five degrees and you know the shade? Leaving from Maine on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for you know what everyone told me about how the summer is tough in terms of weather. You know, it's really humid and hot. And luckily, I mean, my wife has to work. She'll meet me for some of the time. I'm going to take the kids up to see some friends in Maine. And uh, that's one of the most – I'm lucky, man. That That's that's idyllic. I'm taking Indy, my daughter, on a train from Sebring, Florida, the Amtrak, to Philly. We're going to sleep on the train. Cool. She's so excited. Cool. Daddy, we're going to sleep on the train, Papa. What's We're going to sleep on the train. I said, yeah, we're going to sleep on the train. Hmm. Yeah. So we'll get up and see the grandparents are in the Philly area. Yeah, I'm in family world now. You know, I got late to it, but I had other things to do. And my, I, I, I'm talking about all this today. I'm uh, reminiscing with you here, Mike. And, you know, it's, it's definitely a whole different world that I exist in than what I've been talking about. Fort, uh, Fort Myers is Fort Myers. L.A. and that world, that was L.A. That was Hollywood. And it's great to talk about, though. I'm glad you asked me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Okay. Let's do your third song. Let's do it. And we are going to just play it again, right? Or do you want to tell a story? Oh. It's Herbie well, Hancock. Well, Herbie Hancock, there's a couple things about this, why I chose this song. One, my dad gave me this album. He's no longer here. Um, he, I remember him, I was like 15, 14 or 15, and my stereo system in my room outside of Philly in the house I grew up with in Moran's receiver, Techniques turntable, ADS Braun speakers, and oh boy, it sounded so good. And I put this record on, and I was like, "You'll hear the opening of it." And this was um, an an entryway into uh, more instrumental. Me loving instrumental music. Uh, this represents my. Uh, foray into, as I mentioned, I think once, Chikoria, Return of Forever, Weather Report um, was a huge influence on me. Herbie Hancock, uh, they used to Mahu Vishnu Orchestra. This was uh, Larry Coriel, Fusion, Miles Davis. Um, this is uh, also, you know, led me to Berklee College of Music. Um, my love of just great playing, great musicians. Um, this, you know, people are into Fish and Widespread Panic, who recorded one of my songs, who did Hope in a Hopeless World. You know, jam bands, Grateful Dead. These were my jam bands. Hmm. This was my jam bands. You know, this is the Weather Report was my jam band. Uh, and so was Herbie Hancock. And 
one of the reasons, one of the greatest moments of my this whole run uh, was when Herbie Hancock was at my show. I had my first show in New York City. And because of the play, airplay of Melt, I had sold out the bottom line. An iconic, doesn't exist anymore like a lot of things do, but in a, one of the iconic clubs of the world. And Herbie Hancock came to my show. Uh, he wanted to sign me to a, de- a record deal on his new label. And uh, other than that, he came to my stage door and wanted to meet me. And he looked at me and said, I had to use the restroom, but I, I didn't want to miss a moment of what you were doing. And that was like, It was so beautiful. It was... The boulder was at the top for a second. The boulder was at the top for the second. (laughs) It was like I got the boulder up the hill and it stayed there. And it just meant so much to me that he, someone I admired so much, admired what I was doing. Anyway, that's why I picked one of his songs. Let's play it. Did you pick this particular song for any particular reason? I love it. I did it. I could have picked many songs. I think it was the combination of that my dad gave me this record. Yeah. You know, this was, this was, uh, it also, as I spoke about it, represents an era of um, Return to Forever, Chick Corea, Ma Vishnu Orchestra, Larry Coriel, um, you know, these bands, uh, Weather Report, uh, you know, yes. I mean, I didn't get into that, but, you know, the prog rock thing. But my musical journey is all made up of, of you know, this, this uh, imprint on me of, 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 of other people's work, other people's talent. And, uh, yeah. Let's do, 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 do. Let's do it. Here we go. This is Phil Roy's third and final song on Three Song Stories. It's Palm Grease by Herbie Hancock off his 1974 album Thrust. It's like it's from outer space, man. Yeah. You know, Herbie was just experimenting in 1974 with synthesizers. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock. Um, music started to take a different trip out of space in terms of the, the uh, uh, another thing you get on these records is another part of someone's brain creating the synthesizers. Yep. You know, and just another tool and another sound and another influence to uh, get excited by. So, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's a good memory. 
the boulder on on top of the hill. Mm-hmm. It just stuck there for a minute. Yeah, and I love that. It's so funky too. It's just so good, and the recording of it, just everything about it. I love that. I love that, and uh, you know, as much as we might go through things with our in our families, which I definitely went through some stuff with my dad. It's a good memory that he bought me that record and said, "Hi, son, listen to this." Was it because he was listening to it or because he just thought you would like it? I think he listened to it too. I think so. I'm not sure. Hmm. But he listened to some cool stuff. He was into the Brazilian. Uh, He had a a pretty cool record collection, you know, pretty cool record collection. So, yeah. Hmm. Um, All right. We're going to head in for a landing. We're landing. We're landing from outer space, we're man. Landing from outer space. See, we just we way high. We were so high. I'm just like you know, we're you know. I I I was actually once in the space shuttle. Oh yeah, your I music sat, or you? No, I, was, <laughs> I didn't go in space, but it was like in Florida. Where's the, where do they keep that thing? Yeah. Anyway, I got a tour of the space shuttle. Oh okay. Over so, at, over at Kennedy. Yeah. yeah and yeah. they actually let let me in. I mean, it's good. I, they let me sit with my hand mm. on liftoff central, as you were talking about outer space at Kennedy, in a dust suit, <laughs> wow. in some non-contaminated outfit. Yeah, man. I haven't thought about that in a long time, but when you just said outer space, I, and I'm in Florida and the Kennedy Space Center and my hand in that suit on the space shuttle. Mm. Let's fly. You know, I live uh, near downtown Fort Myers near the river. And, well, there used to be a pier before the hurricane called the Tarpon Street Pier. It's gone now. It was 700 feet long and it washed away. Wow. Um, If you walked out on the pier at at night, you know, I knew right where to look on the horizon. Whenever there's launches from there, you can see them. Oh, it's not there anymore. No, I mean, I, I could probably stand near where it used to go out into the water and see it, but it wouldn't be nearly as fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, let's land the plane. Speed round. Are you ready for a speed round? I don't know what a speed round is. I'm going to throw questions at you that you can try to answer if you can. Okay. Um, do you have a nickname that's stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share? Nomad. Nomad. Yeah. Uh, when was the last time you purchased music that you could hold in your hand? Uh, on eBay. Uh, two weeks ago. Okay. So you still play music. Was it a record? Was it a CD? It was a uh, CD. Okay. What was it? It was uh, a Barrington Levy record. Okay. <laughs> Barrington Levy is an artist that I worked with. And my son uh, didn't believe that Snoop Dogg uh, rapped on one of my songs. <laughs> and for for about 30 seconds, Snoop Dogg is rapping on a song that I wrote. So I had to get the physical physical CD off eBay to show him the credit. <laughs> I love that you didn't just find it online. Like the song, just to play, you went through the extra steps to be. Oh like, yeah, was I, your son duly proof. impressed? Uh, 
Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Enzo, did you dig that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Do you do karaoke? Yeah. What would be your go-to karaoke? Um, Let's stay together. Hmm. If you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter to? We Are the Champions by Queen. What would your wrestler name be? Don't with me. If you were a cocktail or drink of some kind <laughs> that represented your essence, what would it be? <laughs> if I was a cocktail drink, yeah, it would be elderberry uh, elixir, um, elderberry elixir tequila flambe. Is that real? No, I just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I know about elderberry is that the Monty Python guy says, your mother smelled of elderberry. <laughs> yeah, sure. What, Speed round, man. I'm sorry. I'm still thinking about elderberries. Okay. Um, what activities or pursuits make you lose track of time the most? When you can't do what Dan Byrne did and say sleep. Um. Lose track of time. Well, scrolling on a f- my phone. Yeah. Doesn't everyone lose an, track of that's time? That's an honest answer. Yeah. Yeah. That would be the time loser of all time. I'm thinking about getting a, a old flip phone and get that thing out of my hand. I was thinking like somebody should come out with like an old bag phone. That most yeah. of it was just extraneous stuff, but force you to carry it around, have a have a a cord. Yeah, just I call. heard. Yeah, just call. You know what? I heard someone talking about in a, in a band um, how you go to use a hammer, and oh, I need a hammer. You go to the toolbox, use the hammer, put it back. You don't carry the hammer around all day, right? Right. You don't carry it around with you all day. You used it and you put it back. Yeah. You know, so this is a tool. I'm holding my phone here. Yeah. It's always there. Yeah. Anyway. I'm with you there. Okay. Um, song, you wish hear, song you wish you could hear again for the first time. Mm. Oh, man. Song that I uh, that I could hear for the very with first fresh time. ears, with fresh ears. I never heard it before. Yep. Um, hey Jude. Hmm. Um, any songs you'll avoid listening to because of the memory associations that are built into it? Yeah. Um. can't remember his name. Hold on a minute. He covered one of my songs, and I can't listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> sir. He's a sir in England. Sir. Elton John? No, no. no. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Oh, it starts man, with what an is E. Him? What is his name? Oh, come on. Now I'm going to my phone, my tool. Um, Put that hammer down. Oh, boy. Uh, I can't think. I'm going to think. It's called Even If It Breaks My Heart. Jared's on it. Who recorded Phil Roy's 
even if it breaks my heart. That is a song I can't listen to. Uh, Eli Young Band? No. Keith Richard? No, Richard. Uh, not Keith Richard. Uh, it's it went gold. It's did, so, did you make some money off of that though? Even uh, though sure, you can't it went gold. To the song. Yeah, yeah. It went gold. <laughs> I got a gold record for it. Okay, come on, guys. Cliff Richard. Even if it breaks my heart was recorded by Cliff Richard. You can't hear it. Can't no. listen to it. Avoid no. it. Okay, that's a great answer. I no. mean, you know, we no. don't get answers that and good I, you very know, Cliff often Richard, for that question. Cliff Richard, he's Sir Cliff Richard. I really doesn't don't know. I know he's popular in Britain. I mean, he's a sir. I really don't know what he does that well. I, I my ultimate respect and my gratitude for cutting my song, but I don't think I was able to get through the song, and I still can't. It's just what happens when someone cuts one of your songs. I saw a video on yeah. the social media the other right. day, which was Sting sitting in the office, I think, at the Lincoln Center. I saw and- no. And, and he, it was, it was I a, saw it. And, and somebody was covering one of his songs, and it was just the pain on his face. Was it was just, hard. He, he, that was not a, good. <laughs> I don't, I remember. He was just kind of like, oh no. He was like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the Kennedy, Kennedy, Center, Kennedy Center honors. Yes. And everyone in the room was looking at him instead of the guy playing it. And the guy playing it was somebody like, it was like, what's the blind guitar? Uh, oh, Jose, Feli- Jose I think Feliciano. it was Jose Feliciano. And which I saw you would that think would and be, would be able to nail it because yeah. he did such a great job on Light My Fire by, by Jim Morris and the yeah. Doors. No, he did not. Jose... <laughs> somehow took it you know you want to make it your own when you're doing something like that if you're an artist you want to make it your own but it was like yeah I saw that Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're scrolling. Yeah, the same. We thing. were we were wasting, wasting time, time together yes, we there. Um, but look, we have a moment that we're able to put our waste of time silver together. Silver lining. It is a silver lining. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh. the silver lining of wasting time. Um, if you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet and create one collective moment, and it could be one of your songs, but it doesn't have to be, what song would it be? Stevie Wonder's Love's in need of love today. Love's in need of love today. Hmm. The whole world listening to that. The whole world. Yeah. Because you know what? We need some love. I'm going to say one more song. Okay. Because I'm going to do, I mentioned Barrington Levy. If you're listening to this podcast, again, um, you know, some people know it. Most people don't. Listen to Vice Versa Love by Barrington Levy. You can pull that up. It, It, like, has about a million hits on YouTube, I think it's my most YouTubeness success. Um, it's a million. Is that good? It sounds good to me. It sounds good to me too. Yeah. Anything a million. That's a lot. Um, what do we like? Of, a million. Vice versa, love. 
And that's by Barrington Levy, and I uh, love that record, and I wish that I wish the whole world could hear that message to bring us all together, bring us all together, because this division that we're going through is bumming me out. How can you be a happy person in this world, be in the world, be a caring person, and know that we are so divided? Anyway. Yeah. Vice versa, love. Give love, get love, everybody. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are here with me today? He would like he he would like that I was sitting here with you. He would love it that after all these years, one that I'm 64. Um, but he would be uh, he would be he would be like, wow, you're all professional. You, someone wants to talk to you about music. Yeah, hmm. he'd be really cool with that. Um, any advice you'd want to give him? I would say this, pay your taxes, stay out of other people's business, and keep Will Smith's wife's name out of your damn mouth. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I tell him. All right, Phil, it's time for you to recommend your three people who you think that you'll share this with that we might be able to get on. That you might be able to actually get on. Yeah. Martin Sexton. Have you had Martin Sexton on here yet? No, no. One of the greatest singer-songwriters in the world. Okay, that sounds great. There you go. Get him on. Okay. Let's go Julian Coriel. Have a talk with Julian Coriel. Julian is uh, 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 the son of Larry, who I mentioned, Mm -hmm. and currently uh, uh, is one of the more talented genius type people ever to uh, uh, do music. He's awesome. He's a collaborator of mine, friend of mine, and also plays in Alanis Morissette's band uh, currently, tours with her. Um, but he is something that – he is someone that the, the, the podcast would find very interesting. Cool. That sounds look, great. Look him up. And if he has time, I would I will suggest – Another one of my collaborators, and this is the godfather of my son, Hator Pereira, who played on the song Melt. And he is the composer, if you have kids, for all the Despicable Me movies. Oh, yeah? He is the composer for all the Minions movies. His animated films are watched by billions of people all over the world. He's just one of the most engaging, wonderful people I've ever met. Anything you can do to connect us with them would be fantastic. I can do that. Okay. And we can do it remotely, so that's not a deal. You can do it remote. Yep. Okay. I'm going to hook you up. Good. Do it. I'm going to hook you up. And I think you and I are going to hang out sometime after this. You know, man, I don't have any friends here. (laughs) 
I got like like two people I've met. I grew up here. I know everybody. You know everybody. Yeah. You got to take me under your wing. Okay. I need I need some help because uh, I don't know anything about this place. Uh, you know, there's some things that are worth knowing. Is just some things that are worth yeah, knowing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts you want to leave us and our listeners with? You know what? I just hope that uh, if you if you listen to the whole marathon of this, um, I hope you had a good listen. And if you listen to the condensed version, I like condensed milk. <laughs> and uh, anyway, if I ever uh, – you can, you, can, you can find me at philroy.com. I don't update my site. I think there might be a link there to like write to me. Yeah, your bio is from when, you, when your son was like a baby. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't update. No, I'm more, I'm, I'm more underground in terms of this whole thing. But, you know, if you want to find me, find me. And then I don't know what's going to happen, but isn't that what life's about? Yeah, man. Not knowing what's going to happen. And uh, I'm happy to be with you here today, Mike, and thanks for having me on. One, two, three. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and host. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Christophus is executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave, Dave, Dave Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're handing it off to Phil. He played his song Melt for Us in studio. It's the song he wrote with his old friend Nick Cage. Keep listening. I can't touch you now. I'm paralyzed. I'm like a child with the saddest eyes. You won't talk to me. You over me. You won't take me back. I need you back. You're so alive. Makes me numb I could survive But I don't want to You're the ruby And I'm the lead Feeling heavy Am I dead? But last night I had a dream I saved your life I proved my love I took the bullet, I killed a shark, I kissed your hand, I thawed your heart, I thawed your heart. You're not around, I'm lost. It seems all I do anymore is hit the sauce And at the end of another glass Is a drop of gin And I'm sinking But last night I had a dream I saved your life I proved my love I took the bullet I killed a shark I kicked some ass I won your heart I won your heart Do you want to 
do want to Cause I want you Cause I need you Do you want to Say you want to Cause I want you Cause I need you to life I proved my love I took the bullet I killed a shark I healed your wounds I thought your heart I thought your heart thought your heart and you melted in my arms melted in my arms you melted in my arms you melted in my